Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon. Um, Yesterday was Shabbos Agoro. I'm going to take another look at some aspect of Pesach. Um, being sponsored, as all these are, by our friends Abe Gluck and family at Gluck Plumbing in Lakewood, currently um, celebrating Pesach in the Holy Land. That's Israel, by the way. Um, now, I don't know why, but I'm drawn to... Uh, the four sons that I've been doing the whole week. You know, every year something else catches your eye, especially the wicked son. And because of something I saw in Haggadah or two, and I'll tell you what I mean. It's We say to the Russia, right? Leave a little. If you would have been there, you wouldn't have been redeemed. So you say, the usual interpretation is that the 80% of Roshan perished in the plague of darkness, therefore they never got out. We've all heard that. But on the other hand, had he been there, wouldn't have been redeemed. Did no Rishayim leave Egypt? Plenty did. This is what you have in the Moshe Feinstein thing. He's absolutely right. No Rishayim left Egypt? Of course they did. You know, and I could get around it by saying, but they're willing to leave and all the rest of it. But it doesn't even seem to be, that doesn't seem to be true either, if you're honest. Because they keep saying, let's go back, let's go back. And anyway, Right away at the Red Sea, when they weren't even out of Egypt yet, at least one quarter, according to the Chazal, said, let's go back. Some said, let's fight. Let's go back. So what do you mean you're telling the rush up? Oh, because you said, You wouldn't have been redeemed. Simply for asking the question, Now, if you want to play games, you know, you can always get out of it. There's a certain way of doing Haggadah Vartz, which I don't like. You can always get out of it by saying, had he been in Egypt, he would not have put the blood on the walls, and the Malchamabas would have killed him. Eh, and all right, yeah, maybe. Uh, that's a cute Vart. It's a cheap answer. But rather, I think it's something deeper, and I think the meaning of is this. And this, again, I saw in Haggadah from Moshe Feinstein, which is, you know, collected from his various works. You know what I mean? I'm talking about the woman, the kudos, naturally. Okay? As he says, Plenty of people left who were ashamed. And he says, as follows, Moshe, he says, so this is based, in my mind, on a note of Yehuda. In other words, what you're saying to the Rosh is you would have had a, you would not have had a gulas hanefesh, you would have had a gulas haguf, which is an interesting um, distinction, which if you want to, and you have a, adults at the Seder, so to speak, you could actually run the whole Seder on this distinction, whether you go with A or B, Gulas, or Nefesh, or Gulas, or Gulas, if you think about it. 
There's a famous speech by the Nerd of Yehuda on Shabbos Agoro, which is in also what they call Nerd of Yehuda which is not really Agoro for Nerd of Yehuda, but like a lot of people do nowadays, they take different collective writings and they put them, you know, as much as they can on the Haggadah to sell it. But the speech is a good speech, as his drushes usually are. And to cut to the chase, because uh, he's talking about Shabbos Agoral, and I won't, you know, take you through that. I think I've done that in another year, because I happen to be a fan of Abishutz and Nevihudu and their drushes style, even though it's not so popular today. But to cut to the chase, he says in his speech in Shabbos Agoral, B'Mitzrayim Hagol is Hayekafel, Laguf Nefesh, which is a very interesting kind of distinction that the Jews had two types of gullus, a physical and a mental. Okay? Uh, and therefore, when the gula came, it had to be, you know, on both levels. That's a very firmly statement. That when we talk about the gula's hanefesh, so that means getting out of the Memtah Shari Tumah to call it this way to get to the Torah. I don't think you have to be so fuzzy on this. I think what it means to me is that it's in Mitzrayim. Now, this is my paraphrase again. I'm not saying it's not good exactly. It's the way I would take it. He's saying the Yitzhak Mitzrayim involved two components, a physical Yitzhak and a psychological Yitzhak. There's exodus from physical bondage, but there's also exodus from psychological bondage, which is something different. Because the Jews were under both forms of slavery, right? As he says, It was kefal, the goof and nefesh, right? So he goes on to say, the note of Yehuda, this interesting insight, which is a very interesting statement that the physical gula was followed later in Jewish history by other gauluses. You know, and I know, the gaulus Mitzrayim is not the only gaulus in Jewish history. If you're from, and you follow the rabbinic, you know, literature, we're now in the fourth gaulus of some sort or another. It's a gaulus Edom, it's a gaulus this, it's a gaulus that, but you know, the famous uh, dream of Daniel, the quadripartite dream. So the four gauluses after Mitzrayim would be Babel, Persia, Greece, Rome, or some variation thereof, some variation thereof. But the point is that there was a gaulus, and you and I are in it right now. Even if you're living in Israel, you're still in a certain type of gaulus, certain type of gaulus, as the Israelis know darn well from all the terrible uh, restraints and limitations that are placed in them by a whole variety of, uh, of circumstances. So the note of Yehuda says, and he wrote this in the 1700s, when the Jews got out of Egypt psychologically, when they shechted the carbon Pesach and they put the blood on the walls and they did like a psychological statement to say, I don't believe in Egypt anymore and I'm willing to put my life on the line or something like that. It's sort of like a psychologist will tell you to go undertake some kind of act to break out of the you know uh, cycle uh, that, you're, that you're in. Right? So... Well, so what he means, as I understand him, is the Jews, of course, have undergone persecution and slavery in later Jewish history. But have the Jews ever undergone, after Egypt, psychological slavery? Which is a good discussion question. 
I know the Nuri Yehuda asserts, which is never again. He says that the Gulas Haguf, we've had other Gulases. But we never had a Gulas Hanefesh anymore. That's what he says. So what he means is that although the Jews have sub- subsequently may have been persecuted, etc., they never mentally believed after Egypt what their persecutors said about them. They may have been constrained by main force, but they did not accept that their persecuted status was right and just. They weren't satisfied with it. If they would you know, say that the way we're living now is the right way, then that would almost be a slave mentality. Like it says in the Chumash, Ahavti Yisadoni Yisishti Vizboni Lo Eitzi Chavshi. Ahavti Yisadoni, I like being a slave. Lo Eitzi Chavshi, I don't want to go free. There is such a Zach. The slave, in other words, is comfortable in the slavery because there are com- compensating factors of comfort, both phys- physical and physiological, and psychological. Physical and psychological. Ahavti Yisadoni Yisishti Vizboni Lo Eitzi Chavshi. The Jewish slave knows he's not in control of himself. He doesn't have autonomy, but he's okay with that because as he has the necessities of life, right? He has food, he has family. That's why they said in, in, the, in, the, in the desert, we had great food back in Egypt, so on and so forth, even though it was at the price of autonomy. It's just interesting human insight. The Torah speaks of such a slave, as I just said, <coughs> in Parsha Mishpatim, but only in the context of an Eved Ivri with a Jewish master. There, a slave has his rights. The Torah doesn't speak of a slave for Goyim who says, I'm doing just fine over here. That a Jew never adjusted to. Even though Jews have been reduced to slavery, unfortunately, throughout, from periodically, from uh, down the centuries, uh, without getting too historical, the, the Jews who were enslaved by the Ptolemies in Egypt, you know, when they brought them down from the sack of Jerusalem later on in the in the in the fourth century, uh, is it was the was the second century? I forget, and um, the end of the fourth century, and um, off the top of my head, the Jews were very heavily enslaved in the Chmelnitsky business in 1648 in by the Tatars. Notice if the Kazakhs caught you, they ripped you apart. If the Muslims, the Tatars caught you, they sold you as slaves. With a velt, I mean a velt, of Jewish slaves, male and female, very tragic. And they were sold by the bucket um, in the slave markets of Istanbul and, and the other Middle East. I told you, what's the name? has a whole book on this now. Ransom the Captives or something like that, Professor Adam Teller. Very good book. Uh, which overloaded the Pidgin Schwing committees. But We've had slaves. Um, if any Jew was caught by the pirates, the the Muslim part, the, the corsairs, they became slaves in Morocco, Algeria, and such other places, unless they were lucky enough to get ransom out of it. Who says that happened all the time? More recently, my father, me, myself, and I, was a slave, playing Prostan Pushin in Lithuania during World War II. When he was in the ghetto in Shabal, they had them do slave labor, Avodas Perach. They you, uh, uh, pulled, uh, schlepped, Heavy stones, and did all mamish. When I say avodas perech, people's backs were broken by the fact that the Germans put too heavy a thing for them to carry. He told me he saw this. Okay, so later he was sent to a concentration camp, but for a long time, he was mamish a slave. So 
that's what the note of the Huda means when he says that, you know, Gulas Aguf Bacharechagolis. There have been Gulases after we got out of Egypt. And there has been slavery after we got out of Egypt in the external sense. But in none of the cases that I just mentioned, by the Romans, by the Tatars, by the Nazis, by the Corsair, by anybody, did the Jew mentally say, Oh, I'm happy now. I'm a slave. I've settled into a nice situation. They wanted to get the heck out of there. They were just stuck. It was a Holocaust. What are you supposed to do? Not for a second did he say, I'm making peace with this. Not for a second did any Jewish slave say, we're talking inferior and the other guy's superior because he's got him slavery. We just were screwed because in the wrong place at the wrong time and a bunch of powerful guys got a hold of us. Whether Christians, Muslim, this one, that, and the other one. So it was a terrible situation. But you want to get out of it. No Jew felt himself inferior, for example, to the Nazis. Inferior. Um, so when the Russia says, the retort that they give him, basically means that um uh what what was I saying? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. So he says that, so so the Evid Ivry, who's by a Jew, not by a guy, he may say but the Torah doesn't have a situation where an Evid of Goyim, whatever it says in Bahar, says that. And even the Evid Ivry I just told you about. His attitude, as we know, is condemned because it contradicts the Gula Shal Yitzhak Mitzrayim. We say, Avada Avanim Lavanim, as you know. Right? The Torah never, and they pierce his ear, and the punishment, the Torah never discusses a Jew as a slave to a non-Jew and liking it. Because that ended, you know, with Mitzrayim. That's what Nerebi Huda says. So when the Russia says, Mo'avod is and you respond to him, Hake Shinov, you're saying, look, if you can't appreciate a ritual that obtained freedom from slavery for us, if it means nothing from you for you, then you had you been in Egypt, you would have been the same way. And you would have said, Life is better here than Egypt, even with we're slaves. So So even if this Russia would have ended up leaving with the rest of his family and clan, which happened because the panic stricken Egyptians chased all the Jews out on that day. Okay, the panic-stricken Egyptians chased out the Jews who wanted to leave, as well as the Jews who don't want to leave. How do I know that? It's called the Chumash. As a matter of fact, in Tehillim it says, They were scared, because the and all that, and uh, the Egyptians were glad to get rid of him. So this Russia... He would have left resentfully, sullenly. Egypt would have still been his favorite place to which he longed to return. Okay? As Ramosha Feinstein says, But here's the thing. So in other words, you can you can learn like that. But the note of Yehuda wrote his vart in the late 1700s. At that time, it was broadly true that the Jews, like him, were subject to I don't know, a certain type of slavery. I mean, he lived in Prague, as you know, and the Jews over there and many other parts of Central Europe had a hundred, hundreds of laws discriminating against the Jews and subjecting them to extra um, uh, financial taxes 
They even have what they call the familiankizets, which means, listen to this, that only one member of your family is allowed to get married. So if you have, let's say, for example, five kids, only one is allowed to get married, the other four are not allowed to get married. I mean, that's a little bit like Paro over there, you know? Uh, that was weird. In fact, I don't remember how the Catholic Church allowed that, but it was against the teachings of the Church. But, you know, that's one we're trying to keep the Jewish population down. So, the, this is the who I'm talking about. And the Jews in Prague and in Bohemia and in Central Europe and in Austria and Moravia and, and, and they, try, they tried to do with Galicia, but the Hasidim made a mockery out of that. I'm just trying to say such things happen. But it was always, of course, an external slavery. In other words, in the Nodebihuda's time, the Jews were subject to legal disabilities and onerous financial burdens, but mentally they were from Jews into whose psyches the outside world didn't really penetrate. You know the old song, That was really the old school. Okay? That's the old school. Um, but here's the irony to me looking at it historically, as I always do. What happened in Jewish history after the Nehuda Behuda? The exact opposite. The Jews got civil rights. So if you want, they got a gulas a goof, meaning they were no longer slaves in Europe and such places. They could move where they want, they could sit where they want, they could go in any business they want, any, uh, you know, school. But they left Judaism. They became alienated from the Jewish tradition and culture in a big way. In other words... After Nebuchadnezzar, he died in 1793. So in the 1800s, as we know, the Jews, a very large portion of them, sadly, entered into a, a Golos HaNefesh, from which they have yet to emerge, most of them. You hear what I said? Here in the year 2023, in Tavshem they have yet to emerge. And so the Jews now, once again, are not in the Golos goof, but they are in the Golos HaNefesh. Okay? What I mean is, these Jews I'm talking about do not want to leave the culture of assimilation. They like being American or British or whatever. It's just fine. As far as their own religion is concerned, they are sadly in a state of low nigal, low nigalim. They haven't dropped the non-Jewish stuff, which dominates their thinking, and picked up the Jewish. And the reason is mamish, like you see with the Russia. The most powerful manifestation of Motsi Atzmanaklal today is, of course, intermarriage. By doing that, by arranging your life in such a way that you do not have Jewish descendants, Jewish progeny, they're saying that they're not concerned or interested in the future destiny of Klal Yisrael. So the fact that my children or grandchildren or whatever it is won't be part of that is no big deal. It doesn't bother me at all. So they're removed from that story. What I mean to say is, the person who marries out is by that act itself making sure that their family, at least, is not going to be part of the story of the Jewish people. Okay? Uh, and they're doing that consciously. It's a kind of a strange reenactment of the ancient story that you and I know because they say now in America, at least, and probably elsewhere, the intermarriage is 80% among the non-from. Uh, <laughs> that's like the 80% of parish in the plague of darkness. What are they going to say? One-fifth? That is, in other words, the wicked son.
according to Ramosha and Lafitte and then of Yehuda. It turns out, sadly, right, it turned, that the note of Yehuda was not quite right when he asserted that the Gula Sanefesh Nisha Nitzli. I mean, among some, but not among all. Not among Rove, sadly. Unless you want to claim, if you want, again, a cheap answer, you can say, well, all the intermarriers are descended from the original Rosham Shalom Nigla Gula Nafshis. Uh, you know, look, I don't know. On the other hand, this model of Ramosha and the Nod of Yehuda is useful for us today, I would say, in the sense that many of us are slaves today in a different way. I'm thinking of two categories of modern slavery. One is a consumerist materialism, to which everybody's mamash and evid, and the other one is addiction for those that have that. Many of us know that the current consumerist culture is, number one, antithetical to Torah values. I don't want to sound too preachy. And number two is wreaking havoc with the kids. Okay, It's a new Zach. It wasn't like this when I was growing up. But on the other hand, you and I know, if you're honest, we can't break out of this dependency. Where mom is saying... Because materialism offers too much comfort to rid ourselves of this. Everybody knows this. Now this is a topic for an adult Seder. How enslaved are we today? It's not push it. You know, if I said drop this or get rid of that, and you know, not so many people would be interested in doing that. The second variant of current slavery is kind of obvious to all. And that, as they said before, is addiction. People are hooked on stuff, and they're mashubah to it, even though it ruins their family, it empties their pocketbook, it makes their life a ashamblata. We know this. It's a, it's a nebuch. Here we get not merely psychological, but you get medical and physiological. It's beyond my pay grade. I don't know, but my son, the social worker, knows this stuff. But, uh, you know, but I know as much as a, as a regular informed balabas, okay, and we got the addiction all over the place. And what's interesting is that all the programs that they put you on, the AA and all that, Mamish echo the Haggadah. Because I know they talk about you have to have a higher power and things like this. And what do we say on Pesach? We were stuck in Egypt. And as the note of Yudah says, we were stuck in Egypt physically, also mentally. If not for an act of God, we'd be still there, first of all, physically, but second of all, mentally. That is to say, attitudinally. We would be Egyptians today because that's what we wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? It's a choice we made. We said, okay, we'll live with it. What happened, for example, to most of the Sephardim back in, you know, 1492 in those years? They simply said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll stay, we'll become Goyim. That's it. It's over. You know? Yesterday was yesterday. Today we're in a different situation. And that, in my mind, sort of foregrounds, dramatizes the nasa of Pesach, because imagine if nowadays, let's talk about addiction, and they say that our Avos, as you and I know, were addicted to Avodah the Memte Jaritomo. Talked about this endlessly. Right? The Pesukim in Yicheskel and elsewhere. 
They couldn't get off of it. They could not get off of it. Why not? I mean, theoretically, a guy like Moshe Rabbeinu should be able to go over to you and say, listen, I'll prove to you that this and this is in Egypt, this Narishkite, etc., etc., etc. It didn't go. Right? It didn't happen. It had to be this dramatic way. Imagine if there was what I would call an addiction Pesach. In other words, imagine if, if, if this year, just imagine, if this year, on midnight on Pesach, when we have the Seder, which is Wednesday night, all of a sudden, all the addicts don't have the addiction anymore. <laughs> How have I? So the guy who was stuck on the drugs, all of a sudden, doesn't feel the drugs. And the guy who was stuck on booze, all of a sudden, doesn't need to drink. And the guy who was stuck on gambling, all of a sudden, doesn't need to gamble. We said, whoa! Right? Whoa! Dayenu! <laughs> That'd be enough. You see? But that is what happened in Mitzrayim. And then it was over. And the whole Avdus, both the physical as well as the mental, as well as the mental, ceased. Because the Bnei Yisrael, as well as the Egyptians, saw that the Egyptian God system doesn't work. They were simply under misapprehension. From now on, they're going to be believing in Hashem, at least the night of Pesach, there was like the, that. And boy, I mean, we had, it was a miracle, right? It was a miracle. Uh, maybe for some slaves, it was a culmination of a process of rethinking. But I'm sure that for many, many, it was like a radical change. So if somebody's an addict at a Seder, and there are plenty, and they think about what I just said, I think they have a, a unique point of view, can appreciate the story. In a in a rather unique way, I was looking around at the different. I got us a few this morning. That's all, and I saw a remark from the Satmarov in a different context, which made me think about this one also, because it brought down. I don't get the Satmarov got but I saw it quoted elsewhere, and had to do with the Shana Bavnei Hashat Achol Shana Bavnei Chorin, Hashat Avdi Shana Bav. What is it? Right? And, you know, why the double lush and all that? And apparently from this quote, the Satmarov said, you know, understandably, and now again, I'm giving him my spin. He quoted the the famous and weird Targum Yonasan. Maybe the most famous and most weird Targum Yonasan. Now I'm talking about in the Chumash in Yisro. When it says, So what do you mean, God says, I, I carry you in eagle's wings? So Rashi says expression, you know, protective. But the Targum Yonason says, and this is very weird, that on Pesach, that is to say on the 14th of Nisan, Hashem picked up all the Jews in Egypt, put them on a magic cloud, took them to, 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 to uh, where the base of Mish would eventually be built, Hamri Yerushalayim, because after all, you have to eat the carbon Pesach in Yerushalayim. And they all ate the carbon Pesach there on that mountain. And then he picked them all up in a magic carpet or magic cloud and took them back to Egypt. Here's the Lushan. Atun Chamisan Ma'adavaz Mitzrayi. You saw, you know, you saw what I did in Egypt. Utu'anin Yaskun Al-Anani Al-Anonin I Nishrin, and I carried you on clouds. There was there was like 
as if the cloud was a confinish arm. Min pelusim, from pelusium, which is in Egypt, maybe Sramsis, Vavels Yishan Lasar Basin Magdisha, and I flew you to the base of Magdash, Lemevatan Pesha, and that's where you should do the Karm Pesach. So in other words, not in Egypt, but the original Karm Pesach was done in 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 uh in Yerushalayim. And then when it came night, I flew you all back to Egypt, to Pelusium. And then I... Now that's wild. Okay? That's wild. Uh, what do you do with that? So, the Satmar, the way I saw it quoted, concentrates, the quote I saw concentrates on one um, aspect. And that was, you see... In the original Gula, that the plan was as follows: I take you out, I take you to Israel, but then I take you back to Golis. You see that? He he picked them up in Egypt, he took them to Israel, and then he took them back to to Egypt. I mean, I guess that begs the question: If he really took everybody in magic cloud to Egypt, then why did you uh, to Israel? Why didn't he just leave them there? That would be something, right? That would be something. You were in. Mitzrayim, and Mamash Puff, a second later, you're in Israel. And even according to those that don't say the Targum is like, Rashi and others, they say, well, instantly, miraculously, all the Jews concentrated from all over Egypt in one place, and Ramses, or something like that, right? So again, this idea of Pizadarech is like accepted by all, probably, as some. You know, a, a, a understanding of of But if you go with the Targum Yonason way, it wasn't the end of the story. It was like seeing Israel and then being kicked out again, and it, and it takes forty years to get back in. And as I, which is an interesting way of looking at it, and as I would understand it, at least now, it's a foreshadowing of the fact that you know there will be. Um, a gula, but then it'll be followed by Golis again until you give the final gula. And I think he's saying, But then to make up other stuff, But you want the end of the line to be the end of the line. They should be in Eretz Yisrael with the final gula. Either way, you see that um, the discussion with the Russia is actually quite, um, how should I put it? quite uh, sophisticated. Um, the discussion with the Russia is, is actually talking about what, what is the nature of Geula and what's the nature of slavery and do we have slavery or maybe people like to use the word nowadays dependencies. You know, They don't like to use the word slavery. But it comes out to the same thing, which is something else is making you do something that you yourself or your own free will don't want to do. The person that is Nebuch, you know, in the heroin is doing something that really his rational self doesn't want him to do, but he's hooked on it. And as often happens, these people don't want to get out of it once they're hooked on it. Hafti is Ishti is Adoni and all the rest of it. And so it's the attitude that the Russia represents. And that's a very scary attitude because I said before, we live in the year 2023. We see a lot of that. In fact, Rove will call you through all sadly, sadly, sadly. Is, is saying, think of the regular guy in America who, you know, marries out or something like this and says, you know, 
and, and you say, why are you doing this? What about your parents and your grandparents and your legacy of being Jewish for thousands of years? I don't know. You know? No, it's not what I choose to do. You see? It's not what I choose to do. So, the Russia is not necessarily a story from long ago. It's a story that uh, recurs again and again. I think that this is a very uh, productive, if sober, uh, topic of discussion at the Pesach Seder. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.